This morning we're going to turn back to Romans. Uh, we left off there in the fall, and I, as promised, wanted to come back and kind of seal up Romans 3 before we launched into a different series. So as, uh, as I begin, I want to talk about favorites. Everyone has favorites, usually, right? Favorite ice cream flavor, a uh, favorite song, a favorite playlist that you listen to, a favorite season. Uh, some have a favorite shirt that you wear all the time, even though your wife says you probably should stop wearing it. You have a favorite book. Some have a favorite football team. Go Lions. <laughs> Sometimes we have favorite people, people that we like to spend time with, people that build us up, people that encourage us, people that give us rest. But what happens if you want to be someone's favorite, favorite person, and you're not? Have you ever observed favoritism in your life? Some of you students here in school think that you have classmates that are the teacher's favorite. Kind of annoys you, maybe. Have you ever thought through favoritism? Sometimes, it, it, usually, if it's not us, it brings a sour taste to our mouth. No one likes human favoritism unless it's directed towards us. You ever ask, though, does God have favorites? Does God favor a person or a people more than another? My answer might surprise you. No, God doesn't have favorites. Well, let me be a little more specific. God doesn't have any favorites outside of the cross of Jesus Christ. And what do I mean by that statement? Well, we learned in Romans chapter 2, verse 11, that God shows no partiality. God will judge every person on earth fairly one day. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to understand something. God is angry. And his anger is pointed towards people. God is righteously and fairly and in full composure upset with every person because every person is a sinner and has spurned his love for you. And nothing we can do ourselves can stop God from being angry with us, no matter how well we live our lives. He is rightly angry with us even if we've memorized large sections of the Bible and we attend church every week and sit and listen attentively and take notes when the sermon is preached, God is still angry with us. In fact, it would be absolutely wrong for God not to be angry with us. That sounds outrageous, right? But this is what the Bible teaches us. And until we grasp this and believe this, we will never understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to understand how desperately lost we are to know that we need to be saved. But here's the good news, friends, right off the bat, right in the first few minutes of the sermon. God has made a way. God has brought a remedy for his anger towards our sin, and it's only through his son, Jesus Christ. God is angry, yes, but God sent his son to be a payment for our sins, to die on the cross for our sins so that we can be made right with God, that we can have a relationship with God. 
And the anger of God is satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ because he dies for us. He dies in our place. And we can enjoy the sweet fellowship with God by repenting of our sins, by agreeing with God about our sins, and believing that Jesus is the only way to receive forgiveness. And through that, you can be made new, a new creation, born again. And yet the Bible is clear, we all come to God the same way. There are no favorites. This is the theme of which Paul, as he's writing to the church in Rome in the first few chapters of Romans, he will argue that there's no special treatment for the, for the group of people, the Jews. They will come to God the same way as the Gentiles. And this is Paul's motivation in Romans 2, and now it bleeds over into Romans chapter 3. And Paul wants his audience to understand that there's no upper hand for some select group. There are no shortcuts. We all come to God the same way. And so we Lord willing, we'll come to Romans chapter 3 for the next four weeks, and as I did in Romans 2, we're going to answer a lot of questions as we walk through here. So my main point is really a main question. So if you take notes, here's the main idea or the main question that we seek to answer this morning. Will God judge religious people differently than non-religious people? Will God judge religious people differently than non-religious people? And here are three questions we hope to answer as we walk through this passage. Is there any reward to being a Jew? Second, does sinning exhibit God's glory favorably? And third, are Jews any better off? If you remember a number of weeks back in Romans 2, I think it's been like six or seven weeks since we've been in this book, Paul said a number of provocative things in chapter 2. And, and I want to say at the very onset, in the light of which culture is right now and what's happening in our world today, Paul is not anti-Semitic. He is not against Jews. We need to understand that. And this passage is not against Jews, per se. Paul himself was a Jew. And so, although anti-Semitism is tragically on the rise in our world today, right now, Paul is not joining in, Okay? He only desires to preach the gospel and to do that faithfully, and he wants to argue uh, his Jews to understand their great need for Jesus. And so as Paul walks through the plight of the world in Romans chapter 1, you could almost see the relief of, of the faces of the Jews who thought that they were not as bad as the world, that they had, they had somehow gained favor with God. And then Paul really crushes their self-confidence in chapter 2 by showing them their great need for Jesus. And and he's very provocative in saying that that, that a Jew who breaks the law might as well be uncircumcised. See, the true people of God are not defined by their outward membership, but their inward change of their hearts by the Spirit, he says. So this line of reasoning then naturally begs the question as they're listening to Paul, what's the point then of the outward signs of of the Jewish understanding religion? If they can be dismissed so easily, then what's the point? And that's where we left off in Romans 2, and that brings us to Romans chapter 3. So if you haven't already, turn to Romans chapter 3 as we finish this, this argument that Paul makes. If you're new to the Bible, I'd encourage you to open one up. There should be some in the seats in front of you. Uh, it'll help you stay focused. 
on what we're going to cover here this morning. And we're going to be on page 884 if you're new to searching the Bible. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. And we're going to look at Romans 3, 1 through 9 this morning. Romans 3, 1 through 9. So follow with me as I read. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. But what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. We'll stop there. I want to encourage you this week, as you spend time in the Word, just add chapter 3 of Romans. It'll help you as we walk through this chapter. It's a difficult chapter. It's a difficult section, uh, Romans chapter 3 in these nine verses. And hopefully, hopefully, we can come away with a better understanding of what Paul is arguing here. But we begin as our first question, and the main idea, again, the main thrust, will God judge religious people differently than non-religious? So the first question that Paul really brings up is point number one, is there any reward to being a Jew? We would, we would expect Paul to say no in light of this argument in chapter two, but that's not what he says. He says in verse one, what advantage has the Jew or what value of circumcision? He says much in every way. So there, there is an advantage. There is this value. And he says, why? To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So Paul began his argument by stating that a Jew was a positive thing because they first had the word of God. When, when Paul says to begin with, he isn't, as I first thought this week, he isn't beginning a list that he's going to keep. Instead, to begin with, translate the Greek word proton, which means chiefly or above all. So we would translate this saying, above all, God gave them the Word of God. So the supreme advantage is that they have the Bible, the very words of God, the oracle, the oracle, oracles of God. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, and, and that's God's Word to them. And what he's saying is every Jew lived in close proximity to the Word of God. They were not left in the dark to try to understand who God is by merely looking at nature as we see in Romans 1. You know, they had general revelation, nature to see God, but they had special revelation. They had the Bible. They had the Old Testament as God's people. And, and Paul's clear answer is that it's amazing to have access to God's Word. So it was, it was an advantage to be a Jew. They could read and study and memorize God's Word. They were a privileged people. Deuteronomy 4.8 says, And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? 
The Jews were given God's word to know him, to know all about him. But not just to know facts about him, but to know his character, who he is, and how he deals with his people. And so there was a great reward to have the word of God. Can we say the same for us, friends? Even though we're not Jewish, it's a wonderful thing to have the Bible in our language to study and to carry around and to open at any point of the day. Right, do I need to take a poll? How many of you have a smartphone? Raise your hand. All the kids should keep your hands down, by the way. I'll talk to you parents later. We all have the Bible. Have you forgotten that this week? You know, in 2024, we've gotten pretty comfortable maybe about the Bible. I mean, I do my regular Bible reading every day in my, my Bible plan through my Bible, and I can choose 30-plus translations. It wasn't that way when I was in Bible college, by the way, and I'm not that old. But I can choose different translations to kind of understand what God's Word says. Isn't that amazing? We have the Bible in any size, in any translation, at the fingertip, as long as our phone's charged. And it's not confiscated. I've walked through Costco and Bibles are for sale. The police aren't knocking on the door and taking them and burning them. It is available everywhere. We live in this country with this incredible privilege to have access, free access to the Bible. And are we too distracted by this to realize it and to read it? So was there any reward for being a Jew? Absolutely. They had the word of God and they were entrusted with it. To be entrusted with it meant that God expected them to know the word and to share the word. Paul knew he was entrusted with the gospel and writing to the Thessalonians, he defends this. He says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. See, Paul knew what it meant to be entrusted with the high privilege of God's word. And so the Jews, they had an advantage and a reward but it was also responsibility. And the same is true for us today. You and I have been entrusted with the word, with the gospel, and to borrow from Spider-Man with great privilege or power, finish it. Yeah, y'all read the comics or watch the movies, right? Comes great responsibility. So what are we doing with it? two people I want to encourage this morning. Moms who are home with kids. I've talked to you over the years. I know sometimes when we get to this point, you probably feel a weight, a burden, like you somehow need to be the super evangelist and and that you need to walk the the neighborhood at all times and share the gospel with them and, and to host people in your home and cook them really meals and do two and three and four and five ministries And it's not sinful to do that. But friends, you need to recognize, moms, you need to know that if you have kids in your home, those are your greatest responsibilities right now. 
That is your captive audience. You've been entrusted with the Bible and the gospel to to help those little hearts to understand who God is. So don't grow weary of doing good. Preach the gospel first to yourself and then to your kids. You've been entrusted with kids. Just to remind you, parents, they're not yours. They're God's, and He's entrusted. He's loaned them to you for a period of time, and utilize that time as you're entrusted with the Word and the gospel to preach to them. And so look for those opportunities every day. You won't get it every day. I recognize that. And for everyone else, Christians who go to work or school or just out with friends or to the grocery store, we have people in close proximity to us. And we've been entrusted with the Word, with the gospel. Are we looking for opportunities? You may not get those opportunities. Here's a challenge. If any of you go to a store or interact with anyone tomorrow, here's a question you can ask someone. How was church yesterday? See what their response is. It could open up a a gospel conversation. It could shut down a gospel conversation. But we've been entrusted with the Word and with the gospel. Let's use those opportunities as the Lord leads us. Don't walk away beating yourself up. Don't walk away thinking you're a failure. Continue to trust yourself to Him and look for those opportunities as God has given us the Word and trusted it to us. It's a privilege for us as well. So what about our second question? Does sinning exhibit God's glory favorably? Paul continues this diatribe. This is a diatribe argument that he's making to this uh, supposedly imaginary person he's talking to. And, and, and just because you were, have the Word, essentially, he's saying it doesn't necessarily mean you're saved. See, the privilege of having the oracle of God, the words of God, does not take you very far if you do not believe the promised one for which the Word speaks of. See, Jesus rebuked the religious leaders, the Pharisees, at the same thing in John's Gospel. He said in John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is that that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So they, they thought they, they have the word, I've been entrusted, it's a privilege, and we say amen, yes. But the word speaks about the one who has come to do the will of God. They had the word, but they didn't have Jesus. They didn't believe. And so he asked this question, what about, the, what about those who, who sin in unbelief? What about those Jews who had the word and who were unfaithful? Would that then impede, would that stop God being faithful to his promises? That's Paul's next question. Look at verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. I want you to, if you have, if the Bible you have is yours, underline by no means. It's the most emphatic, strongest way that Paul says, no way. 
I quickly this morning went to a website of slang for no way. Not a chance, not on your life, no dice, nah. This is Paul's emphatic way, no. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. We need to notice in this that faith has never been just believing something to be true. The, de- the demons believe. No, faith also means loyalty. It's a keeping of the faith. So God's faithfulness means his loyalty to his people, to his promise. And their faith means loyalty to him. So faith in God, believing in Jesus, is never just a one-time decision. It is continual continual faith, continual belief. We continue to trust in Him. We continue to be loyal to Him and to His Word through faith. Faith, as we read it in the Bible, is seen and called the obedience of faith. That's what Paul calls it in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, and, and later in Romans 16, 26. That's why when Moses describes the people's refusal to enter into the promised land, he calls it a disobedience and unbelief. See, the obedience of faith means to believe the promises of God and therefore obey the commandments of God. Obedience is the next natural step of faith. And it's obedience that flows from faith. And it's always connected to ongoing faith and loyalty to God and to his word. And so Paul's question in verse 3, what if some Jews were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify or does it remove the faithfulness to God, to God's promise? And he says, absolutely not. Nah. God promised to be faithful to Abraham's descendants. And Paul says here the Jew is guilty because of their continual unbelief. So does that remove God's promise? Is God then not going to be faithful to his people? I mean, the big, gigantic, colossal question that I won't answer this morning is can God keep his covenant promises and pour out his wrath on his covenant people at the same time? And if you want that answer, we have to wait till Romans 9, 10, and 11. Tyler will be married and have kids by the time we get there. Or you can just read it. See, Paul here can't imagine the idea of God to be unfaithful. He can't imagine this because that's who God is. He's faithful to his word. And so God's faithfulness is not contingent on Israel's response. Paul seems to reject the idea that for God to be faithful, he must accept Israel, whether they're right or wrong. Later in chapter 11, Paul will elaborate more on this plan. But here, Paul adds a statement, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. What he means is that if every human being who ever lived said that God is faithless, God would still be found true. And every man who said this of him would be found as a liar. Just because man says it doesn't mean it's true. God will always win the verdict. He is true. He is faithful. 
even when this world is full of liars. God is truthful always, and He never lies. And it's utterly unthinkable that God would ever break a promise or not be true to His Word. And then Paul quotes here, King David, he says, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. So we read Psalm 51 earlier. That, that passage is famously known as King David fully confessing his sins, his sins with Bathsheba and the killing of her husband. And even though in that psalm David is pleading for mercy from God, he acknowledges that he deserves death. He understands the consequences for sin. He says in Psalm 51.4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God is always faithful. And God is right even to judge those who sin against His Word. Just so you know in this passage, and this is not the point of the sermon, but it's helpful, King David is showing us what godly repentance looks like. Godly repentance is not saying, I'm sorry you're offended. I'm sorry you took what I said that way. I'm sorry that that happened. I was under a lot of stress. I was backed into a corner. I had no other way out. That's worldly repentance. Godly repentance knows and freely admits their sin and remorse over their sin and acknowledges that God has every right to judge them for their sins. And godly repentance is seen over time. That's a free one for you. Godly repentance in your life and in the lives of those closest to you is seen over time. And through the right view, that person's right view of justice towards sin, towards their own sin. Well, his next objection is mentioned in verse 5. He says, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. He's asking, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, isn't that much better? And then how, how, if it's better, if it shows, if us living unrighteously, if us doing sin is better because it shows His righteousness, then, then how can He judge us? when we sin. You know, isn't it out of the depths of sin that gospel shines so bright? So, we really shouldn't worry about sin. In fact, we should just indulge in sin. If sinning does and did bring the, the righteousness of God, then it would be natural to, to sin all the more so that His glory would shine and He would be seen and worshiped. And friends, that's a corrupt argument that we should sin more so that God's righteousness would be seen more clearly. I was thinking this week, how can I explain this? And so I have a weak illustration. It might be like a chef who purposely serves old, expired food because he hates his job and hates the people that he serves. 
And that food he serves causes serious food poisoning to someone. And that person who is severely ill goes to the local hospital and they meet the person of their dreams and they get married and life is awesome. We wouldn't say then, let's serve cold expired food so people can meet their spouse. Right? Because that's ludicrous. That's nuts. Just sin and harm people so that good things can happen. It's that distortion, I think, that we, we see and that we're somehow doing God a favor by sinning more. And it's an absurd statement. It's a human statement. That's why Paul says at the end, I speak in a human way. That's what he's saying. It's a human, absurd, ridiculous statement. It's an argument that comes from a corrupt mind, not the mind of God. Here's the shocking thing. It's, that's present today, very present today. It's called consequentialism, which declares that the moral value of an act is determined by its results or consequences. So in life, people might begin to believe that a, a little white lie to make someone feel good is okay. When the spouse says, how do I look in this? We say, dinner was good last night. <laughs> a company can be deceptive, just a little deceptive, to, to boost their bottom line, to keep them in business. is seen even more clearly in politics. Just doing enough, saying enough, hiding enough to get your vote. And then we buy into it because we're worried about the consequences. We, we don't know what's going to happen. And so we buy into this consequentialism I had no other choice. I mean, the chief belief in this is that the end justifies the means. But that's not how God works. And that's not how we're called to live as Christians. The end justifies the means. So that mindset comes in and then they say, is God wrong to inflict wrath on us? And he says, by no means. There it is again. No, no way. No dice. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why, do, why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. If our sinning were somehow justified on the grounds that it makes clear the beautiful righteousness of God, then, then God would then have no basis to judge us, and that somehow He would reward us. And friends, this is twisted, sinful logic, lying for the purpose of magnifying God's truthfulness is evil, and God is not pleased with this. God is not pleased when we lie. He's not grateful that we lied in order to magnify His truthfulness and His glory. 
the end never justifies the means, whether it's for your finances or your work or your relationships. You are never doing God a favor by sinning. And God will judge us fairly. So God, will, God is not unjust to judge people, whether they're Jews or not. And when God judges, He is faithful to His promises because wickedness demands judgment. God cannot be just and overlook sin. Friends, even though we may look respectable and harmless to one another as we sit here in the building in which we worship God, listening to the sermon, when God sees you, when He sees me, He sees all the way deep down and He sees the truth. And He sees our sins crying out for judgment. And yet, God restrains Himself right now. He is patient with you, friend, at this very moment. As I speak these words to you and as you listen to these words, God is showing you patience, long-suffering. He's showing you mercy. And you may not realize that. And you may have grown accustomed to that. But that patience and that mercy will not always be there. God will not wait forever for His judgment to finally come. Justice will come and it will be perfect and swift and complete. And God will be righteous in that judgment. And He will pour out His wrath on our sins that we rightly deserve. But for those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus alone, God's wrath was poured out on His Son. Not a little, not just a portion, but all of it. Who came as our loving substitute and gave up his life for us on the cross. And so for those who do not repent of their sins, turn away from their sins, and believe in Jesus Christ, God's wrath will fall on your sins because he will not restrain his anger forever. This week in my Bible reading, I came to Genesis 18 where Abraham was begging God to spare Sodom. And he says this, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So he knew this about God. And that question continues to echo throughout the Old Testament. And it's the, the point here, a righteous and just God must exercise judgment when faced with evil no matter who it is, Jew or Gentile, in the church, outside of the church, 
And Paul's statement at the end of verse 8 is right. Their condemnation is just. God is perfectly and righteously just to inflict wrath on those who reject his son's offer for salvation. And so, friends, I plead with you this morning to turn from your sins and to trust in Jesus Christ alone. Through his sacrifice on the cross, we are made new. We are made right. And so when that day comes, and it's coming for all of us, Lord, come quickly. When we stand before him, Christian, he will not see you in your sins. He will see you in Jesus Christ. And we will live forever with him. And it's going to be awesome. I'm using that word the right way. Awesome. And we want more people with us. So, to answer the question, does sinfully, does sinning exhibit God's glory favorably? No. God doesn't need our help in sinning to showcase his glory. Well, here's the last question this morning. Are Jews any better off? Verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Coming back to the first question, Paul asked in verse 1, are Jews privileged? The answer was yes. But now Paul adjusts and asks, are, are we Jews any better off? And Paul answers no. Are, are they without accountability before God? Are they more favorite? And the answer is no. Friends, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Paul is not asking here if people who have the Word of God, who know their Bible, are morally better, but if they are better off. Meaning, did their knowledge of the Bible, of God, actually change them? Did it make a difference in their lives? Did they follow God in obedience of faith? And this is a warning for us. I was praying all morning because it's such a heavy section of God's Word. And, and I, I know it feels heavy probably to you, but I want you to lean into this warning, okay? Don't lean out, but lean into this. Are you better off? You who have had the Bible, who've read it for 5, 10, 20, 30 years plus, are you better off? I mean, you can win a sword drill, Bible sword drill, that's awesome. Or in Jeopardy, when the Bible questions come up, you're like, sweet, I got this. But are you better off? Having privileges, having the Bible alone doesn't save. Listen to Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many... Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There will be ministry workers who will not be saved because they weren't better off by reading and obeying the Word. They didn't have faith. There are people sitting in our midst right now, even possibly, I don't know the mind of God, long-time members, graduates of Bible colleges, 
those that got all the awards in Awana, Sunday school teachers, people that lead Bible studies, or just the person in the pew that will stand before the Lord in that day, and he will tragically say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And why is that? How is that possible? Jesus continues in verse 24. And we know this story. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been found on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house in the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. We have an incredible privilege, friends, to have the Word of God. If you don't have the Word of God, if you don't own a Bible, there's one in front of you. That's our gift to you. And we're privileged to have it. We're privileged to open it and to read it. But are we simply better off just by owning a Bible? See, Jesus says, for those who hear his word and does it, they are building a foundation that won't be destroyed. But for those who hear his words, who read the word and refuse and reject God and his word for them, they will build their house on the sand and it will crumble one day. I want you to understand, I'm not preaching a gospel of works. This is a gospel of faith, loyalty to God and his word as seen through the obedience of faith. James talks about this through his epistle as well. There is advantage to having the word and reading the word, but also responding to who the word talks about. Now, here's the key. We all approach and work through this differently. So don't go about comparing yourself to other Christians. That will not encourage you. But we stay in the Word, and we allow the Word to affect us. And one of the main ways that we do this is through discipleship. You guys know what discipleship is? Do we talk about it enough here at the church? It's helping people follow Jesus. And it's not just for pastors and elders and people that are paid. It's for Christians. So do you want to know how we do this better? It's helping one another follow Jesus in obedience of faith. By having God's word and seeking to obey God's word as God gives us the strength, as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, and you don't do it alone. You deal with other Christians who are walking that same path as you. That's what, what it's meant to be in a Christian life. You know, I've said this before. You probably can quote me. The Christian life is not a solo event. We do it together, and we walk with one another as we follow Jesus. Then we will be like the one who builds his house on the rock in obedience of faith of what God says in his word. Well, I need to end.
Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. And then he says this, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we're going to talk about this Lord willing next week. But every single person on earth is under sin. And this is the first time in Romans that Paul declares that sin is a slave master. Quickly, to be under sin means to be unrighteous also. To be unrighteous is a positional term. We stand before God, not in right standing with him because we've wronged him. And to be under sin is a legal term. We're citizens of sin. It's as though we have a spiritual passport which shows our citizenship. And it's either stamped under sin or under grace. And Paul's statement here is that all, all are under sin. Everyone is lost. Everyone is lost until we are rescued by Jesus Christ. We're all under the power of sin, which enslaves us and traps us. And Paul has been setting this up to the point since the beginning of Romans 1. See, why do people suppress the truth by their own wickedness? Because they're under sin. Why do people not only do evil but approve of evil? Because they're under sin. Why do religious people sit in judgment of others while doing evil themselves? Because we're under sin. We cannot save ourselves on our own. And God is very angry with us. We talked about that at the beginning. And he has every right to be angry with us for our sin. And there's nothing that we can do that in our own power. We need a rescuer. And that's why he sent Jesus Christ. So, main question, main idea. Will God judge religious people differently than non-religious people? No. We all come before God the same way. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Everyone's under sin. That's how we're going to end this section. It's a bleak picture, isn't it? Thanks for encouraging us, Jeff. Well, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, Paul is going to, I paused it. This is a letter. Paul wouldn't pause the letter till the next week, but I am. So you can keep reading. You have the Bible. But he's going to get to the good stuff. Just a few more verses. Yes, we're all under sin. Yes, we all sin. But we can be redeemed through Jesus Christ. He is our rescuer. He, because of his sacrifice on the cross, gives us new life. And our the wrath due our sins is satisfied because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So be encouraged, friends. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we can come and join with other Christians this morning and even diving into a difficult passage, a difficult chapter, the heaviness that's there. Help us to recognize the privilege we have as Christians in this country have the Word of God, to freely be able to read it anywhere, really. And I pray that you would help us to understand it. God, I pray for your people here that they will not leave this place today and seek to live the Christian life all alone this week. That they won't leave this building until they've connected with someone to talk, to interact with. I pray for single people here today, that this struggle is real and hard. I pray that you would connect them to a friend that loves you, 
to encourage them in their walk with you. Pray for those that have been struggling with loneliness and depression, that they wouldn't feel this this sermon, this text as a weight, as a brick on their back, but they would see the hope they have in Jesus Christ and that they would link arms with other Christians. Help us in this room who have uh, spouses and kids and we're filled to the brim with people to not be so self-centered to think that we can't reach out to others. But help us to, to get to know others, to encourage them in their faith, to help them follow Jesus Christ. It is for your glory that we do all this, God. And we do pray that you would be honored and glorified through it all. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.